All right. Um, I want to introduce today, for me, the Jamaica Project is the society in Internet and Society. When I founded the Berkman Center, I had as one of my goals to explore the question of whether the net could somehow move to meet problems of racial inequality. I'd come out of a background myself in first clerking in the Supreme Court of the United States and being moved by death penalty cases of black men convicted by all white juries and watching the Supreme Court affirm those convictions. That was Swain versus United States, subsequently overruled in Batson, 1976. I went from there to the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice. Hello. Tell me who you are. Hi. Hi. No, no, quite all right. Oh, welcome. Yes. You, Thank you. You have Thank an interest you. in Jamaica. I am. I'm Dan Lee. Hi, Dan. So, um, Civil Rights Division, working in Alabama, seeing problems I've really never seen before, and just being immensely impressed with how difficult they were, actually being inspired by Stokely Carmichael, who was the guy who was on the ground in the part of Alabama that I worked in, and then uh, coming to Harvard and thinking about the problem. Uh, <coughs> I have to say, the key for me is meeting a black man that I respected right to the ground. Someone who I felt was just dead even with me. And that was Charles Ogletree. And Charles and I went together to Jamaica when we, I feel that we started the Berkman Center. We started the Saturday School. I feel we started the Berkman Center. We were co-chairs on the first big Berkman Center conference, Internet Society, 1998. And we put on the table questions about the role of university in the environment, whether somehow Internet could be turned to a use that narrowed the gap between rich and poor. So Jamaica. Jamaica for me was the possibility to see. I could see in Jamaica everything that I could see less well in the United States. Everything seemed closer to the surface. This colonial place grounded in slavery. The way I've come to articulate it to myself, it's like the white guy with the whip, whipping the black guy to cut the cane. <coughs> and then figuring out that he could give the whip to one of the compliant black guys and let him do the whipping back up to the porch. And then Jamaica, they fight the Battle of the Maroons. The, they defeat the runaway slaves, at least defeat them to the point where they agree to become the slave police. And this sets a rift into Jamaican society, which you can still feel today. It plays out now in who are the police and who are they policing. 
And then they train the lawyers to run the administrative structure. And they back up again. Right now, the colonial system is backed out of Jamaica, but not entirely. The same systems that were put in place still exist. It's still the same justice system. It's still the same educational system. It's still the same racial system. It's still the same discipline system. So it was all there in Jamaica. We went to Jamaica. We first met with a group, I don't know, maybe 15 or so, led by this remarkable woman, Camilla Roan, who was the director general of the Ministry of Technology, and talked to them. The idea is not that we come with some idea of how to fix it, but that internet represents a resource which if, you know, it's like, it was like a fresh start. It was like it came as such a surprise. And here it is, this new thing with this immense power. And it's as open to poor people as to rich people, almost. Not quite, but closer than almost anything that I'd seen before. You don't agree with that? No, I don't, but keep going. <laughs> how about closer than anything I'd seen before? Keep going. We have plenty of time to argue about it. You know full well that we can take up the entire hour if we get started. So, right. so the way it went is, uh, I think of Tree and I as moderators. That's where we really got to know each other. We were co-moderators of the Fred Friendly seminar series. And hey, very sorry. And as amplifiers, in some way. Some way, good at hearing a voice and giving it a horn. <clears throat> so the idea that we might be able to do that for something that was really worthy in Jamaica was uh, powerful. And Tree and I went there. We pointed to this remarkable program that had taken root in the Jamaica prison system, right at the bottom, the bottom of the society. And it, it had unique qualities. You could see uniqueness in it right from the beginning. It somehow had identity in it, which was the thing that so much attracted me to Jamaica. The idea of internet as a rhetorical environment in which identity can express itself to the limits of your digital skill. So I want to introduce Kevin. But before introducing him, I want to ask Tree if he would just Say a word. Uh, give us a, give us your thought, Tree. Give us. There you were. You're in Jamaica. When give was it? Two thousand. Let me see where this should start. <laughs> but first of all, um, I want to welcome our, our brother from uh, Jamaica. I know this is not the most uh, uh, appropriate time to be coming to the United States, and certainly not to Boston. Uh, we have the snow for you, so you can be a reminder why you want to stay in Jamaica. <laughs> but uh, Charlie uh, and I have had uh, a long-standing uh, relationship trying to make sure that the uh, ever-changing technology doesn't uh, skip the world around it uh, that desperately needs it. Uh, and our mission to Jamaica was multi purpose. For me, one of the purposes of going to Jamaica was it was a way uh, to go home without being at home. Uh, being a descendant of an African 
a slave um, with no known roots, uh, Jamaica was, in a sense, everything that I imagined uh, uh, history would have provided for me and my extended family. That's why it was important. The second thing was it was no coincidence that it was uh, we're working in prisons because in most societies, the prisons reflect the humility, humanity, or absence thereof in a society. Uh, and Jamaica's prisons were full of talented and gifted people who found themselves on the wrong side of the law and facing the ultimate punishment, which would have been death. Uh, and what we were able to discover uh, was not a surprise, but an affirmation. Here was a group of uh, largely men who were gifted and talented, uh, and we gave them computers, uh, opportunity to be creative, and as a result of that, they recorded albums. Uh, there's a national radio program, dialogues going on, uh, incredible sense about uh, justice and equality. And uh, our ultimate point was, given what these young men are learning in institutions, imagine what they can do if they're free to get away from the propensity to say people should be uh, put away for life. Uh, and that was one of the motivating factors. The last thing I'll say is um, the Internet Society Conference has been the same. If you think about the de developing world and you think about the places where uh, oppression and colonialism still has a grip, the one thing that's changing that uh, is the availability of technology. Uh, if you look at some of these nations where a computer, internet access, has revolutionized information and access to power and changed the paradigm for power, it tells me that we here cannot just, uh, as we often do, tell people what they need to do, but and give people the opportunity to do what they must do, uh, that we can learn from those experiences. So I'm glad that they are here, I'm glad this process is continuing, and I'm glad that Jamaica uh, is one of the uh, important parts of what we're doing. Both Alex and uh, Diane are research students working with me as well. Charlie didn't mention specifically, but one project we're looking at uh, is to re-examine uh, Marcus Garvey's uh, supposed trial uh, many years ago and the flaws uh, in that proceeding and what it means uh, for Justice Zan and and what it means for Marcus Garvey in the 21st century. So all of this is saying that a country about which we know very little, leaders about which we know even less, uh, have a rich history that I think can educate all of us in a way that we can empower uh, ourselves to think about liberation, but also we can liberate uh, the world to see things from a different point of view. And technology is the, the driving force, but the people uh, are the motivating force that make a big difference in it. So I'm, I'm, I'm glad that we're carrying these themes uh, forward, and I'm hoping that all of you will do what we did, go to Jamaica, uh, not as experts, uh, but as friends trying to learn and make a difference, and that you can find creative ways to do things that might make a difference in Jamaica or Haiti uh, or, or uh, Venezuela or any other parts of the world where this this sort of our resources, uh, intellectual and human resources, are desperately needed to make this one world as opposed to having 37 different worlds based on race, class, opportunity, uh, and resources. And I'm hoping this these discussions here will be a uh, good start. Uh, Great tree, absolutely great. Um, 
I'm sorry. I have to, also have to. I'm sorry. Someone's watching this on the internet. Two corrections for the law students. Charlie said Swain versus United States. It's Swain, Swain versus, versus Alabama. Alabama. Oh my God. And he said, <laughs> yeah, and he said, uh, it was the change that was passed in 1976. It's 1986. 1986. Oh. <laughs> These students are instantly trying to find it. I have the wrong information, so that will be corrected. And Charlie was actually clerking for the Supreme Court uh, when. The Swain uh, case was argued, and it was argued by one of the most powerful uh, lawyers in American history. Uh, that's uh, the late uh, Judge Constance Baker Motley, who was the only woman on the Brown team in the 1950s and went on to represent James Meredith to integrate the University of Mississippi uh, and Charlie and Hunter Ball to integrate the University of Georgia. So he was a black woman uh, who was told not to be a lawyer, and she took that uh, as a challenge to be a great lawyer. And she became a great lawyer. She argued 11 cases for the Supreme Court and won all of them except uh, uh, Swain. When the Supreme Court decided Batson in 1986, she said, my work is complete. It took the court uh, 23 more years, but they finally got it right. So she's considered 11 and all a perfect record before the Supreme Court, even though the Supreme Court took 23 years to correct their error. So that's just a little and just so you really understand the Swain part of it, the challenge was that no black men, they had black men in the Venire, but they used peremptory challenges to challenge them off. And Swain challenged his conviction on the ground that no black man had ever served on a Talladega County jury. And the Supreme Court of the United States refused to respond to that claim on the grounds that he hadn't proved that the defense had challenged the black folk off. And it was so transparently, I don't know what you'd call it. Maybe from their point of view, it was smart. Maybe they just weren't ready to go further at that particular point in the history of the court, the tension of civil rights. But it was also corrupt in terms of something that made sense. And so it <coughs> took a long time to get it reversed, and it was a motivator. All right, so on my left is Mr. Kevin Wallen. Kevin is a Berkman Fellow. <coughs> Kevin is a man born in Jamaica, educated in Canada, returned to Jamaica, where he became a businessman, involved with a computer store, a gasoline station. He found his calling, in a sense, when he visited the prison, perhaps a story he'll tell you. And it's been through his effort, through remarkable pressures, that a unit of inmates, a group of men in the prison, bonded together, learned the pleasure of learning skills and being a supportive cohort. And it's that seed that became a program that is now set. Students expressing truth. <coughs> it is, to me, a program that has exactly what Tree was talking about, the potential to teach a lesson that goes way, way, way beyond Jamaica. Kevin is known as the governor amongst the inmates. Governor? Yes, sir. Tell us about that. <laughs> well, let me um, stand right here. Well, 
first, I think it's um, it's just so nice to be here and to look at all you guys. You look all smiley and nice, and the weather is so crazy outside. It's unbelievable. Warm today. <laughs> oh, it's warm today. Yeah. Well, you should have been here last week. <laughs> right. Guy and I, we came out. We came off the plane yesterday, and just in between walking from the plane, you know, you have to walk through the tunnel. It was just like wow. It was unbelievably cold. So, um, so it's 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 been crazy, but it's not too bad for me because I went to school in Canada. I actually went to school in Thunder Bay, Ontario, which is <laughs> way up north. They would tell me that it's so cold up in Thunder Bay. Before I got there, they tell me it's so cold that it's snow squeaks. And when I got there, I realized that it was true. It's um, very chilly. When, when, um, when my brothers and I went to Canada in, in 1985, it was just absolutely an amazing time for us. For me... In Jamaica, you have all these different folklores and these things that you do, you know, these little rituals. And so one of the rituals that I heard about as a child is that if you throw stones behind you and never look to see where they drop, you would never have to go back to that place again. <clears throat> so after going towards the airplane um, on that day, January the 27th, 1985, I picked up some stones on my way onto the plane, on my way going in to the airport, and I picked up these stones, and as soon as I made my first step upon the plane, I closed my eyes and I threw them, I threw them behind me, wishing that I would never go back to Jamaica. Because the kind of existence I lived before I left, it's one that I never wanted to go back to. So now, got on the plane, did all of that kind of stuff, you know, plane landed in Canada. And as soon as we hit and the cold hit, I realized that I probably want to go back sooner than I thought. <laughs> but um, just getting into Canada and just going through the routines and stuff. And um, we got to the point where we had to go to school. And I, I just did not fit into the school environment. Not that people made me feel <coughs> that I wasn't welcome, but more so because... At age 11, I was already out of school and working, and so I, was, I felt like I was a grown man just doing things on my own. So by the time I got through the whole school system, my record was not, you know, all that great. But then somewhere along the way between high school and I think it might be depression, I'm not sure. But there's a period after high school that I did nothing. Because I did not get a, I did not do very well in high school, and so therefore the kind of jobs that I wanted to get, I couldn't get them, and so I found myself working in warehouses all the time. But I was good at wrestling, collegiate wrestling, and so I started coaching wrestling at a nearby school. And in coaching wrestling at this nearby school, um, the first year that I coached this team, they won the regional championships, and so all the teachers in the school kept on coming up and bothering me about you know, going to university and becoming a teacher. <clears throat> and I started thinking about, okay, from age 11 to 15, I never went to school. Grades 9 and 10, I took basic. Grade 11 and 12, I took general. I wasn't very good at school. I don't like school. No way. But these people kept on bothering me and bothering me. And one day I went back to the school. And when I went back to the school, the principal called me into his office. And when he called me into his office, there was all these university, you know, applications all filled out. 
and all I had to do was give them information they didn't have. And so I gave them the information. In my mind, I was just going to give them this information and they would leave me alone. <laughs> so I gave them this information and I just left it at that. Um, later on that summer, I got the reply from the universities and I was, a, I was accepted to all three. You wouldn't believe how upset I was. <laughs> <laughs> and so I started now thinking about it. Now I have to go. And I went to this guy that was my wrestling coach and still is my mentor. I went to him and I told him about it. And he said, well, um, if you're accepted, I think you should go. And so he started helping me in terms of trying to get some um, <coughs> loans and stuff to go. So I went to school at the end of that year. I went to the one that was furthest away. And the reason why I went to the one that was furthest away is that I was, I had a group of friends that I know that if I was close to them, I would come home every weekend, I wouldn't get any work done, that kind of thing. So in going to university and stuff, I learned a lot of things when I got there. And I think one of the things that was surprising to me is that in the community where I was in Canada, from that particular school, none of the black kids were going to university. As a matter of fact, I was the, the first black male you know, at the time to go. And so when I got there, you know, I just started thinking about, you know, just the fact that this was like a second chance for me and all of these different things. And then I thought about why I didn't go in the first place. And I thought of university as this kind of place that it was for, you know, the nerds, you know, people with pocket protectors and, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. But here it is that I was there and then I started to get to know people and they were not very different than I, you know, from me. So it was like a, a really nice thing and so I could not wait to be done university to come back and talk to other people in my community. But something unique happened while I was there. A scholarship came about called the Chalker Scholarship. And what the Chalker Scholarship was, it was a scholarship that gave, you know, it would pay for my tuition as well as my books. And the only thing that I had to do was to come back to my old school, you know, twice a year and speak to other students about university life, about my experience. <clears throat> and so I started doing that and that just, it just changed a lot of things because um, now it's not a big deal. Like kids go, you know, black kids are going to um, university from that school, you know, like it was the norm when as before it was not the situation. So what I cut from that is that they just did not see people that they could um, relate to coming back, you know, and speaking to them. After I graduated from university, I traveled around Canada for a while speaking. Then I taught at high school for a couple of years and didn't like it all that much because of the fact that I was in this classroom every day. And so my brothers and I started to look around for a place that we could um, open up a business in Canada. And we couldn't find a place that we really liked. And so we went to Alberta, to Saskatchewan, all the way across to Vancouver, and didn't find anything that we liked. My two brothers took a trip to Jamaica, and then I got a call from them saying that they know what they want to do. They wanted to open up an internet cafe in Kingston. In 1999, um, the, the whole computer thing was brand new, um, in a sense, to Jamaica. And so when they went down and they started getting stuff ready, they came back up and we basically all just packed up and just went. At the time, I did not move back instantly, but I stayed and worked from Canada, buying the equipment, buying what they needed and sending it down. 
at the time I was working with Ruben Hurricane Carter. This was right about the time when the movie Hurricane was being made and about to come out. And so I was, you know, traveling with him and scheduled to go to all these fancy places, scheduled to go to Oprah. <laughs> house and to all of these different places i was looking forward to it my brothers called and they said you know what we need you and i said well right after the tour i'll come down i said no 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 we need you now and so i went and i spoke with ruben about it and i left and i actually went with them because ruben kind of talked to me and he said kev you know go with your brothers and do it i'm always going to be here you know so i went and when I got to Jamaica, one of the things that I that bothered me is just like almost every day I would cry going into work and I would cry coming home. Because when you're driving on the road, you see people begging all the time. You see all these different things. And I so remembered what life was like for me before I left. And so I wanted to see how I could do something to help, to make a difference. And so I started speaking at schools and, you know, little service clubs and that kind of thing trying to make a difference and then because of the kind of impact that Ruben had you know on me I said you know what maybe I could bring him to Jamaica and have him do a talk and maybe he can inspire people and you know get people to recognize that they can pull up their bootstraps and get out of the situations that they're in kind of thing and so um I went through the process and did what needed to be done and brought him down and while I was on the radio promoting this event someone called the radio station and asked me if I would give some tickets to some inmates to come in and see this talk. And at first I thought about it and I said, well, I'm not really making any money. I'm just breaking even, you know, and to give away 30 tickets. And then this woman was not, um, she wouldn't let up. And she just kept on asking and bothering me until finally I said, you know what, fine. Meet me at this press conference later and we'll talk about it. So she came to the press conference and, you know, very forceful, Kevin, I'm here, where can I get the tickets? So gave her the tickets and they came to the function and it was um, at the time when this other rehabilitation program was running. And so all the, they brought 30 inmates and I think six officers came to the, um, to the event. And at the end of the event, um, I spoke and then a group of the inmates, you know, came to me afterwards and said they liked the way I spoke and if I would come and speak with them at the prison. And so I said I would. And that's basically how I got into the whole prison thing. I went there and I visited all the prisons and I think Spanish Town is the one I visited last. And then I went into Spanish Town, we did the tour and all that kind of stuff and on my way out I heard like a whole bunch of rambling, you know, the grills were being knocked and shaken and whatever. And when I looked back I saw three stories, <coughs> three stories of young black men that looked like my father, looked like my uncle, my brothers, they looked like <coughs> me. And I decided that, you know what, this, I, I would love to do something about this. So I started to ask more about the education programs and the kind of things that were happening. And there was not a lot of things happening by way of education. And I wanted to do something about that. But at first, <clears throat> I felt that maybe if I could just go in and I could just inspire, you know, just tell some stories and talk to them about, you know, how to get out of their situations and talk to them. You know, the little cliche stuff, prison is not who you are, it's where you are, that <laughs> kind of vibe, you know. And so I started talking to them about this kind of stuff and going into the prison three times a week and just talking to guys. Then I realized that after the first couple of weeks of talking, you know, you need to start bringing something with you. So I started bringing a newspaper and then you realize that you need to bring more than the newspaper because these guys, they see you as, as a beacon of hope, this light, 
you know, um, coming in. And so I donated a computer um, to the library. And when I donated the computer to the library, I recognized the guys that would not come when we were doing the, the stuff that was teaching them how to spell rat and how to sound letters and how to say ABCs. I realized that those guys that wouldn't come, when the computer came in, they were fascinated by it. And so they would sit on a computer and it would be teaching them how to spell rat and dog and cat and they wouldn't mind. And so I asked if I could refurbish this library. And so we went in and we took out desks and stuff and built stuff around and put in an AC unit and put in a stereo. And at first, they gave me a hard time about putting in the stereo because they said, well, you know, why do you need a stereo for these inmates? And for me, when I was in university, one of the things that kept me going was, was, was sounds crazy, but it was, what's his name, Tchaikovsky, right? I just loved listening to that while I was working on a paper or reading, whatever I was doing. I loved that easy listening background music. And so I felt that I would introduce this to them. And so we started, you know, doing stuff where I would tell them that they could listen to the 12 o'clock news, you know, and, but that, that's it. The rest of the way, I gave them a whole bunch of CDs, just classical music. And so they would listen to the classical music and do their thing. And so now we had six computers in this library. But it wasn't the computers that really made the difference. It was when these men started to recognize that this was theirs. It was when they started to realize that this was something that they are helping to build because I did not go in there with exactly how I wanted set to look. I just went in there and every day something different happened. And so then we realized that the guy that was most helpful you know, the guy that was there every day to make sure the room was set up. Well, this guy became the president. And then the other two guys were always there with him to make sure things are happening the way they should happen. They became the vice presidents. And so we had two vice presidents. And then we started to have all different kinds of people who just wanted to help and contribute. And so then we wanted to give them roles as well to make them feel like they are a part of what's happening. So they became directors. So you had a director of education, a director of personal growth and involvement, a director of, re not, not rehabilitation, a director of um, sports and culture. So there's a bunch of different directors. We have eight directors in all. And then you're looking at all of these directors and say, well, there's other members of the organization. How do they feel a part of it? And so then we started to form committees. Then you have committees and subcommittees. And so then all of these guys started to get involved. And there was a sense of accountability on all levels and they're the ones that came up with ideas and and I would just basically help them to drive it they wanted to do a quiz competition so we sat down and figured how we were gonna do it they wanted to do spelling bee competitions they wanted to do expos they wanted to do all of these different kind of things but what was important is when they realized that every person in the room was unique in one way or the other and we started to call upon that uniqueness to make the group stronger. So here it is that you had a guy that was strong in math. So he taught math. And then here's that you had another guy that was strong, you know, in music. He knew something about music. So he started to teach what he knew about music. <clears throat> so the group did not wait on someone to come through the gate to teach any course. So therefore, every day you went to the set lab, there was something going on. And so the whole prison environment started to recognize that these guys were doing something and they were actually it was it was working at that time 
there was a bunch of other things going on where people were getting to go on the outside and to sing and go into churches and just basically get a chance to leave the prison. But these guys chose to stay in this room every day and to strengthen each other. And so that is, in a sense, the, the base of, of set, of students expressing truth. And the whole idea of students expressing truth, it was... It came about when we had a discussion one day, and we're talking about the whole idea of, of, of what is a student. And the whole idea is that a student is the most humble thing that anyone can be. When you open, your, open up yourself to the idea of learning something new, it's just an amazing thing because you just started to change and you start to realize that, you know what, I don't know anything, or I don't know everything, whatever it is. But you become open up to the idea of learning from everybody that, that you face, that comes around you. And then expressing. The whole idea of, of an expression. It's not me just coming and pushing something down your throat. It's not me just telling you that, oh, just walk with... It's me expressing myself in such a way that if you choose to follow me, it is not because I've bullied you into anything. But you just like the way in which I express myself. You like who I am. And you want to be, you want to adapt some, so, some form of the qualities that you find. And then the truth. Well, the way I look at it is that the truth is love. It's pure. It's God. It's everything that's perfect. That's the truth. And so students expressing truth. That is basically what it is that we try to work with. I tell them all the time that I'm not there to judge anybody and to ask anybody to confess to me what it is that they have done because I cannot forgive you I cannot release you I don't have the power to even write a piece of paper to say that this man is a changed man let him out I don't have that power what it is that you have done that brought you to this prison or brought you to this place in your life right now it is for you to go inside acknowledge what it is and then with your creator, with your source, with whatever it is that you consider it to be, just reconcile. And at that point, you are free. And when it is that you are totally free, no prison, bars, no guns, no warders, no, no officers, nobody can hold you inside of a prison. You are free to go once you are free mentally. Free yourself mentally first and then the physical stuff will happen. And so we start to realize that the guys that came to us were not a bunch of guys that were trying to come to me and constantly tell me about their innocent and this and that. That part of the argument just got away from it. And they started to work on themselves. So the spiritual side of the group started to grow. And the whole, I think the thing that is most unique about it is the way in which these guys care for one another. They become a family. So much so that we've been doing this thing now for about about seven years and knock on wood we're still a hundred percent have not had any member of our group go back to prison but that's not the most unique thing what is most unique is that there's a whole bunch of these guys that are out and they all stay in touch with each other they have now formed in a sense like a, 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 a group that has grew that grew out of set I grew out of set in the prisons to know a group of guys that are on the outside and they have fundraisers they get together and they talk and they see what's going on with each other and when someone needs help 
nobody just goes in and loans them or whatever. They get together and figure out how they can do fundraisers to help that person get to where they want to go. And I think it is absolutely fantastic. So here it is that it's a group now on the outside that is not led by me, but from a group of men that came out of the prisons and saw the importance of the togetherness and how it, was able, how it helped them to spend their time while they were behind bars. And now they figured out how they can use it to kind of do things in their communities. And what strikes me most with this group is that they not only think of how they can do things to better themselves, but they're looking at the community <coughs> outreach aspect. So recently they just did a fundraiser to, to open up a shop in a neighborhood where one of our past presidents lived. And so not only did they open up a shop, but they make sure there's a computer in it and the part of the deal is that he has to work with the kids within his community, teaching them stuff about the computer every day. So the whole idea of, of students expressing truth, I think prison is, is not the end of the line. You can see the end of the line from there, but it's not the end of the line. But when you can get a group of men that are coming out of a prison to recognize you know that they're still human beings and they still have something con to contribute it makes all the difference in the world and so what I realize is that may maybe I'm selfish and maybe that is why I, I, I get so pa I'm so passionate about it because the whole idea of Mr. Campbell and I were talking this morning and the thing that came up is that 80% of the persons in the care of the Department of Correctional Services um, are going to be, be out. And so I, I have brothers, I have a mother, I have family, I have friends, I have a child that needs to live in this world. So the person that goes to prison is now coming back out. Who do I want to come back out? The same vicious, mean person that went in? Makes no sense. So we try to see how we can just structure things differently. But even beyond that, these men have children of their own. And these children are going to end up exactly where they are unless we can somehow change their mindset so they can still be fathers and mothers to their children even while they're behind bars. And so the idea is not to just to give them uh, something to suck on, but the idea is more to give them an opportunity to transform. And so that's basically where it is. So we'll open up to the table. Questions for Kevin? <coughs> Hi. Hi. Um, I'm curious. Um, we have an extraordinarily high rate of prison population here in the United States. I happen to be half Caribbean and American. My father is from uh, St. Thomas. Um, the program they had there is when they would not wait until kids would start going from simple theft to going on to something more serious and being incarcerated and getting a prison sentence uh, when they are little and maybe they're caught stealing something from a store instead of giving them saying you have to go to prison they would have something like okay now you have to go to school um, after school you have to join a steel band so they had to have the discipline of being involved with music and then they started learning about um, using computers to record music right. and then this, it was a program for the kids between the ages of 9 and 16 and the judge would always say 
these are great kids, but they need to understand the importance of doing their homework and being accountable. Right. And it ends up they were so good. Um, some of the kids, when the last time I was there, they had just come back from Tokyo. They were on their way to London, and they were having a fundraiser to come to Chicago. And these are kids who are just in their little place, and now they're getting a chance to see the world at a young age. Um, That's St. Thomas? St. Thomas. Really? Yes. Mm -hmm. um, my question to you is, um, just like in this country, um, it, it's what you're talking about is absolutely fantastic, but it's sort of like the guys already have the prison record, and now there's an, the investment in them after they've already have their record. Right. And like in this country where you lose so many privileges, like the right to vote and the right, <clears throat> right to participate, it's wonderful, but what does, what is, I mean, the United States is not doing nearly enough. You know, we have an apartheid in our educational system, and right. a lot of people are very comfortable with the way things are <laughs> that way, believe me. Right. It's by willful intent, certainly right. now in this millennium, definitely. Right. What is Jamaica's situation um, in terms of investing, like having computers in the schools, or having not necessarily one for every child, but just having these facilities available so that they do not pursue that uh, career of crime and partially interrupt their young, young, vibrant lives by being incarcerated in the first place. Right. Well, there's, there's, um, in Jamaica right now, there's so much that is wrong with our education system. Okay. I, I'm not familiar. You know, That's why there's I'm a, there's a great deal that is wrong with our education system. And so, until that is fixed, we're going to have the problem. But you see, it goes deeper than that. I think one of the things that sometimes we take for granted is, is that you have these children that are growing up. L let me see if I can show it to you this way. There was a point when um, grandparents, though they weren't educated, but they would stick out to make sure that their children or their grandchildren or whatever make sure you get an education yes. you got to study three times as hard and they would just make sure they grill you mm -hmm. that generation is gone the generation that you have now is a generation that just wants to party and wants to wear name brand clothing and wants to just show it's a different kind of style that they want to show mm -hmm. so what you find is that the importance is not being put upon the edu the education is not as important okay but it was no less it was no more important back in the day the education system was there mm -hmm. but now it is it, it the system is there but then you don't have the home because these you have folks that will go out and in a sense and they will do whatever it is that they do they want to have fun and then the whole idea of getting the, ch the child up in the morning, make sure the child goes to school, going to the child's school, make sure that the child is doing what the child is supposed to be doing. That's not happening. Okay. And so these mothers, you, there's, you remember there was a time, I mean, it still happens now, but not as much. But there's a time when there's a whole heap of teenage pregnancies, especially in the Caribbean. There's a whole bunch of teenagers getting pregnant. The fathers were not around because, you know, these were just little boys themselves you know, that just wanted to get some, if you know what I mean. Mm -hmm. And so when the girls became pregnant and they had these babies, when the babies came, their thing was just to, you know, show off with these babies. And so you're talking about dressing up the babies in whatever they could dress them up in and take them out and whatever the case is. So there's no, the moral fiber, this, the guidance is gone. That's, it's <laughs> gone. And so for me, 
I don't even want to talk to the government because the government itself needs help. I think if we can somehow ground something like we're talking about at the bottom level, get people to understand it there, and it would just kind of come up. Mm -hmm. Because right now, the government is just like, I, I don't know how they're going to fix it, but I think the people can. Once a person recognizes that it is important for me, for my child to get a good education, go back to that whole old way of, of thinking and not depend on the government. But right now, the way it is, is that every day you listen on television and the two opposition parties are fighting, are the two parties are fighting, and one is saying that the government is not doing this, the other is saying that they, the opposition is not doing this, and then people get caught up in that. Mm -hmm. And then they spend so much time themselves cussing the government that they, don't, they never look at what it is that they need to do. Okay. So I think somehow if I would be running some kind of a campaign, it would be to try to get the people Try to get them to understand mm -hmm. that collectively we must stand up for what it is that we want. Okay. Hi. Hi. Um, you talked about one of the last things you said was helping these inmates mm -hmm. be parents, um, mothers and fathers to their children currently while they're in the system or maybe even being better parents when they leave. <clears throat> and I know that here in America, you can visit the prisons and you can see children there visiting their parents. I know it's not that way in Jamaica, it's difficult. How do you overcome that and help these, these inmates be better parents when they can't reach their kids? Well, perhaps I would yeah. ask um, Sir to take that one. Our policy is that no one under the age of, I think, the 17 or 18 is allowed into the penal facilities. Um, so children cannot go into the facility to, to visit their parents. But we have what is called um, family day at um, all our facilities where we relax the rules and they do come in, speak with their fathers, mothers, um, etc. But the policy is that no one on the age of 17 is allowed in. And family days once a year? Yeah, once per year, yes. And, and for as I read it to the question you asked, um, there was a time in the 1980s when we had a set of children that we referred to as the barrel children. Mm -hmm in that the parents would run off to the U.S., legally or illegally, and they would leave their children back home okay. with grandparents, grandparents um, very little care, and they would eventually end up with us. We are still having the problem. Actually, we have 350 juveniles in our care. We have a structured program for them. They are exposed to IT. Um, they do well in school because they, 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 they Education is compulsory. Excellent. The figure is growing because as I speak now, we have, I think it's 30 juveniles who are temporarily incarcerated in our prisons because we are presently opening another facility to house our juveniles. So what I'm saying is our juveniles are committing more offenses and vicious offenses. Mm. That's a challenge we have which um, we must solve one way or the other. Okay. Yeah. Hi. Um, I was just curious about your personal choice. Besides falling into it, the sturdy ticket story and all of that, is there any particular reasons that you chose to try to help inmates instead of, for example, impoverished, gifted children who could then pull up the whole, the rest of the population with them and their investment? 
perhaps it would be a lot more beneficial to the country as a whole? Well, I think, um, <laughs> you see, a lot of, a lot of, a lot of times I run into this kind of thing where it's just very difficult to express the importance of working with persons that are behind bars. We don't recognize Jamaica is having a problem. We go to Scotland Yard, we come to the United States, we go to Canada, we go to everywhere in the world trying to find individuals to come and help us solve these problems. Then here it is that you have 3,000, 4,000 and some odd, or 5,000 some odd individuals behind bars. Thank They're you. the ones that have caused this problem in a sense as we see it. They're the ones that are committing the crimes. But nobody's talking to them. We're paying millions and millions of dollars every year to get advice from experts. And here it is that you have the people that are committing the crimes, that are causing the problems, and you're not talking to them. We have in our prisons, if you say 5,000 persons that are incarcerated, and of the 5,000 persons that are incarcerated, most of them, I would say the average is two child, or two children per person. Now they having two children per person, those children are now on the outside. The children now don't no longer have a father. But not only it is that they don't have a father, they have the rest of society telling them that they're worthless just like their father. That they're no good just like their father. And so if nobody steps in to help these fathers become better parents and put them in such a way that when they come back out of prison, that they can come into their children's life and sit down and talk to them about walking the right road. We're never going to get anywhere. So here it is that you have these fathers when they come out. And let me explain to you in, in, in the best way that I can. Jamaica's prison system, or the prisons in Jamaica, it's not, it's not pretty by any means. And if in Jamaica, if you have... Let me use yours since it's empty. If you have this bottle, and it might, this might make no sense to you, and it makes no sense to me either, but I'll just explain it. If you have this bottle of water, and you finish drinking the water from it, and you figure you're going to save the bottle, and later on, you're going to put some water in it and drink from this bottle again. And you walk and you're talking to a friend, and all of a sudden the bottle drops from your hand. And you pick this bottle up. And then you go and you wash it out and you get it all clean up and you fill it with water again and then you drink from it. You cannot go back into the regular prison population. Why? Because the prison population has this rule, this prison rule, that says that if you drink from that bottle again that has dropped on the ground, that is now the terminology is grounds, bow, and gone. You don't quite understand what all those things mean. But at the end of the day, Jamaica is one of the most homophobic places that you can be. And if Jamaica itself is homophobic, the prison is even worse. And so you drinking out of that bottle that dropped on the ground. That you bent over to pick up. That you bent over to pick up now means that you're gay. And if you think that you can go back into the regular prison population after having persons seeing that, the persons that are in your cell, they cannot afford to let you back in the cell because if they let you back in the cell, it means that you're gay, they know it, and they're, they're okay with it. 
So they have to defend themselves against you, even though you and them might have been best friends. You go into a prison cell that is eight and a half by five and a half. A prison cell that is eight and a half. I was watching television last night. They're talking about a prison cell being six by 12. And it's inhumane because two persons are in that cell. Eight and a half by five and a half. And what's the average? Four, five? Four, five. Yeah. Four, five persons mm -hmm. in that cell. And if it's overcrowded, it could be more than that. If you're mentally ill, you make it you're a single cell. Right. And so here it is that in those cells, you can imagine four or five people <clears throat> in an eight and a half by five and a half space. <clears throat> you might, you have to sleep in these hammocks. And it's not the hammocks that you see on the television where they're advertising Jamaica on the beach. <laughs> <laughs> We're talking about hammocks that are made out of, out of flour and rice bags. And it's just stuff that is tied up, up there. And then somehow you have to get into yourself and then get up there. And I think there are three, it's 11 up to the roof. So I think there are two hammocks and everybody else sleeps on the floor. And you have to somehow, I don't know, with your gymnastic skills, get up in these hammocks. Once you, once you get up in the hammock, you have what is called, they call it your piss gal. And it's a bottle. It's a bigger bottle and it has a hole in it. And so when you're locked down at 3 o'clock in the afternoon, you're not getting back out of that cell until the next day at 9 o'clock in the morning. When you are in that cell, if you need to urinate, you're going to have to urinate from up there. In that cell, there's no washrooms, no running water, no conditions like that in these cells. And you have to figure out how to relieve yourself. If you have to do a number two, you're going to have to do it in a plastic bag or on newspapers or whatever the case is. If you should even think for a moment of defecating without waking up everybody in your cell, it is reason enough for you to be killed. Because each person must be given the opportunity to be blocked, to block themselves from the smell of your feces. And if indeed they wake up to it, it's disrespectful, you're bowing them out, and there's all kinds of different conversations. When you have persons living under these conditions for two years, three years, five years, ten years. And now these individuals come out of prison after receiving no rehabilitation. Officers roughing them up all the time. They, how are those people going to be when they come back to society? And when they have not received anything further than when they came in, they came in, in a <coughs> sense, for committing a crime, but at the same time they never had a record before, so maybe they could find a job. But now they're still uneducated, and now they have a record. They're never going to get a job. So what are they coming back out to do? They know that prison is, is the worst place that they've ever been, and they don't want to go back there. So when they come back out, and they try for the longest while to get something to do that won't land them back in prison, and they find that, you know what, I have no other choice. I have to go and steal something. I have to go rob someone. If they come to rob someone, they are going to do whatever it is that they have to do to ensure that there are no witnesses because they do not want to go back to prison. The cycle is an amazing cycle. Unless we recognize the importance of educating these men while they're behind bars to ensure that when they come back out, they have some, there's some way that they can, they can fend for themselves, that they can survive. If we don't do that, we're gonna always have this thing. The recidivism rate, 
is is still way too high. What you know what it is? Twenty four percent up to last year. It's twenty four percent up to last year. So it's right. It's trend. It's trending down. It's trending down, but nonetheless, we need. I mean, just the whole. We just need to get rid of it. Because the whole idea, when I look at the kind of killings or the kind of crimes that are going on in Jamaica right now, they, nobody wants to go there or nobody wants to go back there. So, I mean, for me, answering your question is to say that Jamaica has a whole heap of problems. And so I chose to use my time and my resources in the prisons. And I'm hoping by doing what I do that some other persons with resources might decide that, you know what, I want to do something in communities. I want to do something and together we can change <coughs> and fix the problem as opposed to saying, okay, fine, you know what, leave the prisons and just go to the schools because it's all stuff that needs to be dealt with. Right now, the percentage at South Camp, South Camp is what, 200 and, the population is 270 something? Mm, I think it's just about 200 now. Over two, just over 200 now? About 230. Well, we have, we have about somewhere around 80, 70, 80 persons that participate. Some are core members of the group and some people just take the courses that we offer. At Fort Augusta, the population, it, I think two. it's 100 and... Well, 180, 190. 180, 190. And so there we probably have about 40 or 50 persons. At the general penitentiary, there is... Um, 1,700. 1,700. Yes. And right now, the enrollment that we have, you know, um, is a core of 207 that we're working on. Ethan, I saw your hand up earlier. I don't even know what I was going to ask earlier. I um, Actually, I, I had a comment that I wanted to add on this question about parenting from within prison. Um, I grew up uh, more or less next to uh, the largest women's prison in New York State. And my father was a criminal defense attorney at the time, uh, working with legal aid. And I spent uh, much of my childhood with my family involved with a, a program called My Mother's Place. Uh, which was an opportunity for children of prisoners to come stay for a week and spend the week with their mothers who were also going through a parenting program at that point. So very much the same cycle that you're talking about and the role of grandparents really struck me. Because what happens in these families is that children are raised by the grandparents because the mother's behind bars. And this ends up being its own cycle where those children are remarkably at risk to end up in trouble. And then when the mother makes it out of prison, she's the grandmother who's then dealing with the next generation right. of children. Finding a way for children to see their parents in prison seems to have a role in breaking this cycle. Yes, it does. In sort of showing what that future looks like. So I have to say that the idea that the prison isn't open to under-18s concerns me a little bit in some ways. Because it seems like, in some ways, the effects that Kevin is talking about as far as showing a path forward uh, would be an extremely powerful message for children who are already caught in the prison system by virtue of the fact that their fathers are caught in the prison system. So that's what I think I had my hand up for. What, the, the question that I actually want to ask, I, I know that when, when Charlie talks about 
the set issues, he's often talking about technology right. and sort of the transformative power of letting people make media, letting people make recordings, and so on and so forth. What's interesting, Kevin, is when you talk about set, it's really about people teaching each other, and it's people discovering their own knowledge and what they have to, to teach and to share. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about how technology fits in. Does it fit in? Is that the special sauce in this, or is that sort of just, just another thing that's getting taught nowadays, just another uh, skill set that's in, important for people to share and, and teach? I, I think the, um, the whole issue of technology, it is, it is a special sauce. And I, I, I think I'll tell it to you in, in, in this way. There was a gentleman that was at the prison and hell-bent that he was innocent and that he was not going to give up his innocence by even wanting to participate in a lot of the programs in the prison. He was at the general penitentiary and then he was um, sent up to South Camp. When he came up to South Camp, he would see me all the time and he would walk past me with headphones on and just kind of look at me. Never paid much attention. And then one Christmas day, I came into the prison because I go there every Christmas to have lunch, I mean dinner with them. And so one Christmas day, I'm there and he came and he took his headphones off and he looked at me and he says, why do you waste your time? And I said, what do you mean? He says, I see you here on Good Friday. I see you here on Christmas. Every holiday, you are here. Why? And I said, well, I just think it's important for persons to recognize. He said, no, 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 that don't make no sense. He didn't even allow me to finish. And he's just talking and telling me about his story. And then he told me that he doesn't want to be in a place with criminals because he's not a criminal and he thinks criminals should die. And he went on and on. And so I went, he and I had a long conversation. I went back to the prison later on that week and he was in the room. And then he stood up and he said, I'd like to join the group. And I said, why would you like to join the group? He says, I'd like to join the group because it is not something that is being done by the prison. I've asked around and I realized that this is something done by someone from the outside, blah, blah, blah. And he wants to join. Then the more he, he became involved, the more I realized that this guy had something to offer. You know, very selfish in a lot of ways, but at the same time, he was very strong when he had to make his points. Something happened in his personal life on the outside. And he couldn't get a chance to help. I think his little sister started getting involved with some guy and she was too young and he wanted to be there for her to talk to her about that kind of stuff and he couldn't be there. So as a result of that, he decided, you know what, I have no control. I'm behind bars, nothing is happening, I don't want to live anymore. And he decided he wanted to commit suicide. And he tried it and it didn't work because someone caught him and I don't know, they got him to the hospital and whatever. <clears throat> and then he tried it again. And this time I think everybody was just a little upset. They just didn't even want to deal with him anymore because at this point I think he had like a year and a half to go. And they're saying that, you know, Bridget, you can run this year and a half, don't, you know. And so I'm sitting in the room one day with the guys and they said, Kevin, we don't know how to stop this guy from killing himself. So I wrote to the commissioner and asked him if I could, you know, introduce and start working with this video editing thing. And so I got the okay to do it. Got the okay to bring in a video camera that they could use and experiment with. And we had all these skills that these guys had done so well with. And so this was some, in, I think it was 95 anyways. I mean, 2005. So we decided that, you know what? 
we're gonna try to do something where we invite people from the outside to come in and see all of the things that these guys have been working on so we had what we call an expo and so with the expo I brought all these things to him I, I took in my all my personal stuff my my video editing suite my cameras my decks everything that I could and put it in a corner and I said to him I said I want you to work on the video editing software because we're going to be doing this expo and I want video editing to be involved in it. He knew absolutely nothing about video production. I brought this guy Amilcar into the prison on four occasions to give an introductory session. And the introductory session that was given, they were shown where the help menu was and that's it. They, they just ran with it. Within four weeks, this guy was so amazing with video editing. From just the four one-hour sessions that he got. He was so amazing. He was doing stuff that when I brought the guy that taught him back in there, the guy was amazed and asking him to show, how did you do that? How did you get that done? And so the whole idea of this, the technology, it was just amazing. And so even after, because one of the reasons why we even set the date for the expo when we did is that this guy had wrote a letter that he was not going to live past his birthday. He was going to kill himself before his birthday. He's not spending another birthday in prison. And so we set the expo for, I think it was two weeks past his birthday. And he says, but we can get it done before. I said, no, we can't do it before that. <laughs> and he said, but yes, man, because he didn't realize that I saw the letter that he wrote. He wrote me a letter. He wrote a letter to his girlfriend. He wrote a letter to his mom. He wrote all the letters. And the thing about it, he was going to ask me to deliver them too. So he wrote all these letters saying goodbye to everybody. And I saw the one he wrote to his girlfriend. And so technology is what... Is the whole idea of once he started learning that thing, it felt like that's what kept him alive. But Ethan's question is more than just one person. Right. He's, he's asking agree. a question of how central is it to the philosophy of SET? That is, where does it fit in the process of self-development that you see as the core of SET? Well, well, put it this way. I think with certain skills, if you come out of the prison, then you might be able to get a job if you work really hard and if you, you kiss somebody, anyhow. But with a skill like video production and audio production, with certain skills, you can come out and do your own thing. So what we try to teach is we try to teach the skills that are more entrepreneurial driven. Excellent. The kind of skills that when someone come out, mm -hmm. they can start something on their own. Mm -hmm. And so we're at the point right now where um, the, the, the executive body, which is the president and his team at noon every day that's when they do their executive training so the guy that knows video production really well he teaches the rest of the group video production because just in case he gets paroled tomorrow somebody will be there to continue on with what he is he, he was key at because here it is that now that this guy has now out of the prison the guy that did the video production but then there's another guy in there that's arguably better than he was that learned from him so that is just how the thing goes so yeah it's a it's a essential part of what we do we can teach them you know the spiritual stuff and the, the woo woo and the, the stuff with a lot of flowers but at the same time when they get out of the prison they need to be able to survive on their own let me add a dimension to this that uh, i feel i've learned in the process of connecting <coughs> with this it's that if the staff doesn't support you you can't change an institution. And when we first came into this program, 
it had an edge to it. It was like, all right, it's an inmate-driven program, but it still had a bunch of stuff that was had a lot of complaint in it. And uh, this is a radical thing for, for any me to admit. But in order for this to work, the essence of it becomes recognizing that this group, its mission is to make the system work the way it's supposed to work. And so it's become like a, a, a philosophy that this isn't a program where you ask the guards to do anything extra <coughs> without somehow figuring out how to get them extra pay for doing it. It isn't a program where you ask the guards to be somebody that they're not. These people are correctional officers. They're in the security business. They're not educators. But it is possible to get across the idea that you can perform the security service and within that frame allow an inmate-driven educational cohort to form and to function. And that, in <coughs> fact, that's, that seems to be a key. And I don't know, the technology part of it, it's, it's, it's just an amplifier, I think. It really is. I mean, we're so excited. We've just been approved to have 88.9 FM as a Kingston radio station with a model and a grant from UNESCO with money in Giles bank account right this minute to set up a network of low power FM transmitters throughout the prison. So that bingo, we have a radio network. And these labs, the lab that Kevin is going to dedicate, we're hoping and we're planning, April 17th, 2007, it's built, will have a radio studio in it, a recording studio in it, and a computer lab in it. And we are hooking up with free culture. I'm hoping Christina succeeds in getting a fellowship for the summer. Free culture runs something called Antenna Alliance. Antenna Alliance is a growing group of college radio stations dedicated to improving the quality of Creative Commons music and playing Creative Commons music. And we're hooking up a linkage that will allow producers here to have a Jamaican vocalist combined. And so the prospect is, is immediately in front of us <coughs> of having a computer lab at the General Penitentiary where someone works on making music and eventually produces music, which is picked up through the Antenna Alliance, circulated on a playlist to American stations, played on American stations, which can be heard over the radio in General Penitentiary. And to me, the potential of somebody hearing something they produced in the penitentiary, played on American radio, back through radio that they themselves are producing and running within the prison, it just feels like it's going to be electric. So somehow I think <coughs> the core of the role of technology is that it, it opens people's imaginations. You know, you know it's new territory. You know you can think about it fresh. And the idea of somehow embodying emancipation and independence in a self-development program that has reconstitution at its core and playing that idea out legally and in appearance terms and emotionally and in legal terms, that seems to me to be a core strategy 
To me, that is the internet and society strategy. Yes, Lewis. Um, I want to come back to something you said at the beginning, which was a sort of vision of the internet as a, you said, a rhetorical environment for identity to express itself. And um, so I'm intrigued by that connection between how the medium works and identity formation. And I'm wondering if, if that works in this context. That is to say, giving these tools or having this equipment in these prisons is, is part of what one wants or sees people coming to own themselves or to to have a sense of, of agency that they didn't have before. In a way, it goes back to Ethan's question, really because of the tools and the and the medium as opposed to simply having a visit from you or something. But, but you know, is it the case that in this situation, um, the, the technology becomes a rhetorical environment for the creation of identity? Well, I think that I think I can see that working. Um, and the same thing again is just the whole idea of these guys seeing themselves as being more being more than nothing. Because these at this point in time, you know, believe me, before they get into the prison they think they're nothing. And the system itself is gonna you know, just let them know that for sure. <laughs> that you are nothing. And so with something like this, they're gonna start seeing themselves. The guy that it's not just the person that can sing. It's not that, that just the person that is able to bellow out, you know, poetry. But it's the guy that is sitting in the lab working on the rhythms and blending the rhythms together and then someone comes in and lays a little poetry on it. He's the guy that suddenly realized that, you know what, he does not have the perfect voice for singing, but at the same time, he can do something on the radio. He can, be an, he can do an interview on the radio. Maybe later on he can hear it being played back. You know, there's a, it's just this thing where these guys come alive by realizing that they are, that they, they, they're a part of, of something. I think, that, I think that the whole idea of, of using the internet um, to, to send this message or to, to amplify, you know, what we're doing, I think it's just, it's just a great tool. It's just a great way of going. Speaking of which, tonight at 6 o'clock, at 99 Brattle Street, which is in the Episcopal Divinity School, Kevin uh, is appearing and talk, leading a discussion about Jamaica. Uh, also, the Midnight Ravers, which is a, a uh, reggae band, um, light refreshments. I, 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 I eagerly invite you to come. No tickets are required. I eagerly invite you to bring friends because I'm Deathly afraid there won't be any audience there <laughs> at all to eat the refreshments. And I'm hoping at that point also that the Antenna Alliance will make itself a part of the program and that Marcus Garvey will be a part of the program and that we will also have an opportunity to talk about the movement to save the cockpit country and the story of the Maroons, which is one of the most interesting things, I think, that, narratively speaking, that's underway in Jamaica. And as with numbers of these things, I think that the stories are Jamaica-bound in some way, but uh, have tremendous lessons <coughs> that go way beyond Jamaica. 
Um, certainly, I, that's so with the story of the Maroons. So let me bring this to a close simply by saying thank you all for coming. Thank you for participating with us. And if you can see some way to connect up with what we're doing, um, we would dearly love it. It's, um, it, it's, it's an excitement for us. And it's, uh, to me, a tremendously important thing to have this component part of the Berkman Center. This is internet and society. And uh, I'm just extremely proud to be able to join Tree, who's the founder of the Charles Hamilton Houston Institute for Race and Justice, in putting on a joint conference at which I may say the subject on the table is the place of university in cyberspace. That's what the spring conference is about. And we're, 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 we're wary when you say the place of university in cyberspace to people immediately think of the University of Phoenix and think we're talking about <laughs> online education. No, that's not it. And uh, we're, in pursuit, we're in pursuit of an idea not of the university as Harvard University, but university as a collective force in the world that's capable of ba balancing the other major forces in internet space like government and for-profit corporation. And we're in pursuit of a symmetry, university cyberspace, university created cyberspace. Cyberspace is the library of university, will be the library of university. And so the, the, the way in which each is the environment of the other and each in a sense is the programmer of the other is on the table for thought and discussion. Uh, it's, it's, it's a part of thinking about internet and society not as a technical problem only and not as a human problem only, but somehow of seeing how each one offers potential for expression of the other. All right, so thank you very much.